hold uh, 200 watts, your, your perceived 200 watts for X amount of time, whether it was 20 seconds or something. And it was who was more accurate. And then Cody was like 199.8 or something. And he was wearing sandals when he did it. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Uh, One of the requests that we've had from uh, several listeners is to feature more athletes on the show. And uh, sometimes that's a really good fit, um, especially when the athlete in question is someone who, uh, you know, takes a technical look at uh, his or her training and really pays attention to the details. And um, probably our our favorite person in that uh, maybe not super long list is Cody Beals. So, Cody, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show show and uh, taking the time to talk to us today. My pleasure, Michael. You're too kind. It's my turn to pay you a compliment now. I've been telling everyone (laughs) who listen that this is the go-to source for one-stop shopping to stay on top of the science and tech side of the sport. So I used to read more journal articles when I had more time on my hands. I've been slacking on that front, but I know that if I at least get my weekly dose of this show, I'll be keeping on top of the industry. So you've lined up an awesome set of guests lately, and it's great to see there's so much love in the room. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, going going way back, I think Cody was the one who first introduced us. Yes, that's right. That was uh, yeah. That that's probably worth re- rehashing that anecdote. Yeah. It was when uh, it was when Cody popped by the 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 lab that I had in Toronto, the studio that I had in. Uh, this probably would have been back in 2016 or 17. Um, and then he he was talking to somebody else while we were out on a little run about uh, the the then very nascent virtual wind tunnel project that uh, these guys from Waterloo were working on. And that's, you know, yeah. That And here we are it's five years so later. So I assume I guess. My, my check for royalties is in the mail then. <laughs> your, finders, your finder's yeah. fee? <laughs> yeah. I well, wouldn't cash it right away. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you may have to, yeah, you may have to give it a few months. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for those kind words. And now you've, you've really put us on, uh, you know, on the spot to deliver, <laughs> deliver content after, after that kind of plug. Um, so today the, uh, the topic of conversation, what we, what we want to hear Cody's thoughts on, um, is, the the feel of training right so we've had uh that question from chris kirker that kind of started us all thinking on along these lines of how do you use rpe which is of course rate of perceived exertion in training and racing um and i shared uh my thoughts and then we uh probably by the time this airs we will have put up the the episode that we recorded with michael erickson of that triathlon show and we we covered um training by rpe a little bit in that in that interview um but this is a very you know kind of a, a different look this is a look from uh, somebody who's uh, at the top of the sport and uh, it's always interesting to he- to to hear that that side of the story as well so i think it makes sense to start uh cody with your uh, most recent race at uh, ironman kirtland um which uh, has the absolute best name in <laughs> in racing because it's uh you know ironman c lowered capital c lowercase d capital a which you know for the aero nerds amongst you uh, is of course the coefficient of drag times area um, value, and uh, that's the perfect that's the perfect name for a race, as far as I'm concerned. And I suspect at least a few of our listeners will agree with that. <laughs> I hope so. Yep. <laughs> 
<laughs> so Cody, uh, Ironman coefficient of drag times area, uh, probably not, not your favorite day out there, but, uh, I would love to hear uh, the story behind it. Oh, that's a good guess. It was, uh, not a pleasant one to remember, Michael. Um, I guess to set the stage 10 weeks before that, I went down to the U S pretty much in a panic. It was pretty much do or die time for my career. Canada, uh, my home province of Ontario had just locked down for the third time. I was looking at an extended stretch without pool access again. So I bit the bullet, planned this extended trip. And I'm a real homebody, so that was a, a real challenge for me to be, be away from home for that long. The first race I targeted was the Ironman North American Championships at Tulsa. Absolutely stellar field there. I think I was bringing my B-plus game to that race, given all the disruptions over the winter. And um, long story short, my day ended in just a crushing disappointment there with a double flat tire on the side of the road at mile nine in the rain, which was quite a mood. So I made the decision to strategically DNF that race after losing any hope of rejoining the front of the race um, and set my sights on Ironman Kirtle Lane, which was five weeks later. And that game, that race, I was sure I could bring my A-plus game to with another good training block. And it was my best training block ever, guys. I trained 20% more volume than I ever have in the preceding four weeks leading up to that Ironman. And I absorbed it better than ever. It didn't feel like too much. I just really finally nailed that formula of, eliminating all the distraction and stress in this training camp environment and really just making it my entire business to eat and sleep and recover and train. So it was brilliant going up to it. I felt super ready to contend there. And um, unfortunately, the day before things started to go unraveled. Basically, I woke up with a sore throat and things devolved from there. I didn't sleep a wink the night before. I was just tossing and turning with a fever all night. And so by race morning, I knew it was not probably a good idea to start this race. And in the past, I probably just mm. would have uh, pulled the plug on it. But I decided to turn this into an exercise to see what I could get out of myself on the day. I've always been an athlete who has struggled to kind of find my limits in racing. I'll often look fresher at the finish line than some other people who've pushed themselves a lot harder than me. And that's not necessarily a good thing because it's an important skill to learn how to bury yourself like that. So suffice to say, I found that and Kurt Elaine, and it was an extremely ugly, ugly performance for sixth place. It was far harder than any of the 10 professional races I've won, including three Ironmans. Um, and all it earned me was a sixth place. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of grudgingly proud of what I was able to salvage on that day, but it was without a doubt, the most miserable experience I've ever had, definitely in sport, possibly in my life. So a couple of uh, follow-up questions to that, I guess, devil's advocate, do you think the additional training load would have contributed to you getting sick, like the extra fatigue? Do you think that that played a role? Yeah, that's a fair question. Um, definitely, you're riding that razor's edge at this level of too much training uh, to, you know, go as fast as possible. So you really, there was some calculated risk taken. But based on how I felt leading up to it, I really don't think I was too far over that line. Um, but yeah, definitely, I would probably go a little bit lower next time, just err on the side of caution. The the other question or the other comment I have is uh, kind of about your point about being proud of it, even though it wasn't your best day. It was something you can walk away from and, and hold your head high that you you know laid it all out there. Because I know from my own personal experience, um, I wasn't vying for the win or anything like that. But it was uh, it was one of the multi sport Canada races. I think it was Rose City back in 2017 or 2018. But uh, it was just one of those races where. It was average in terms of pace, I guess, but it was so close to my limit and the entire run, I just had my heart rate pegged and I could not go any faster. And I walked away from that with this neat feeling, like it was a terrible feeling, but it was a neat feeling of like, I could not have done any more than I did. 
And there's, there's a certain amount of accomplishment in that. And I think it, it helps you as an athlete understand your own limits and, and grow from that. Well, that, that touches on an interesting point. I posted something about this after the race and Michael reached out to me with the idea for this podcast, basically the duality of pushing really hard. There's this one school of thought that that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You can only expand your limits by testing them and pushing them on a continual basis. Some other people would argue though that, um, you know, you, you can overdo it to the point that there might only be a finite number of all out performances within your mind and your body over your entire life. And, and you want to expend those really carefully and safeguard them, mm-hmm. only burn those matches when absolutely necessary. I think those two things are kind of a false dichotomy. And let me elaborate on that. Basically with shorter efforts and efforts in training. Yeah. I think you can, you can continually push yourself to the brink mentally, but I think Ironman is a fundamentally different beast. And when we get into ultra endurance stuff, I think the physical toll is substantial. And so for the first time I've seen that firsthand, my, my policy has always been with shorter races and 70.3s, I won't DNF unless I'm physically unable to continue. So I've raced 50 odd 70.3s now. I've DNF two due to, you know, mechanicals or extreme illness in one case. My Ironman record's a lot rockier now. I think I've raced six and I've DNF two, and I probably in retrospect should have DNF Kurt Elaine. Hmm. So, you know, though I, though I said I'm grudgingly proud, and it's now 15 days after that race, and guys, I'm still not myself. I got horrifically sick after. I basically spent three or four days. All I could do was just lie in a cool, dark room with a pounding headache and fever. Yeah. Um, I developed a sinus infection after. And like cognitively, I still feel really fuzzy. So it, it's um, it's kind of scary, you know? I, I'm on the Ironman uh, Lake Placid start list at the end of the month. And frankly, at this point, I don't think that's going to happen unless my form miraculously turns around this week. So that's the cost of those efforts. Mm-hmm. It might make for a cool post on Instagram after the race and maybe some new fans, but I stand by my approach of DNFing Ironmans when things aren't going according to plan because the psychological cost and the physical cost of finishing is so damn high. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things there that that are worth digging into. Uh, the first is the you know the uh, the toll that it takes on your immune system, and when you do, we've had uh, we had. Um, Dr. Araujo on the show talking about um, returning to training and racing post-COVID. But we, I asked him the question about the effect of uh, hard training on the immune system. And there's, there's a very well-studied and very obvious effect, uh, when, especially when the, when the event is an iron distance race and especially when you're digging so very deep. And, you know, I don't know how many times I can say especially, triple especially if you're coming into it with, with obviously some kind of infection, right? Some kind of respiratory bug. So you, you're pretty much guaranteed to to you know put yourself in a in a hole for quite some time in that in that case so it is uh it is it's interesting that you uh, that you chose to finish that race because that there's definitely all sorts of reasons why a dnf may have been you know uh, may have been a strategic choice right it's obviously a very personal decision um and then but the other question um and the other thing I want to talk about is the is that psychological or that cognitive toll that you mentioned, and uh, I think it's really important to for 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 us to start thinking about those costs as or that that as a resource as well as our you know physical capacity to perform as a resource. So there is definitely um, a cost to it, and there's a, a subsequent recovery time that needs to be um, you know that needs to be adhered to in order to come back as strong or stronger from from those. Uh, um, from those efforts, and it's it's something that I don't think people fully fully appreciate. And uh, I agree with you that in shorter events and in 
in training sessions, that cost is much lower, but it's not, it's non-trivial, right? So um, when I talk about kind of my own experiences and my own circumstances are obviously different than yours, Cody, in many, many ways, but uh, uh, they, they are, I would still say that even in shorter, you know, bouts of training or shorter races, those cognitive uh, psychological costs are, should be weighed and, and, you know, training planned accordingly. Yeah, I, I, com- I completely agree with that. Um, earlier in my career, I had kind of a, a point to clarify with David Tilbury Davis, a coach I was working with, who's been on your show three times. I think the only guest to have been invited back three times. <laughs> I'm gunning for that third invite, David. Um, yes. But yeah, so David and I worked together for a number of years. It was a really positive, fruitful relationship. Um, and he would prescribe these sessions to failure, quote unquote, early on. The first one he gave me was a series of one minute intervals and they were, I think he designed the set to, to take me to failure around like, you know, 12 to 20 intervals or something, mm-hmm. 12 to 20 by a minute. Um, but it was a little miscalibrated with power at the time. And so I ended up doing like 40 something and it just <laughs> utterly <laughs> devastated me. And so we had to have this conversation, yeah. like, what does it mean to take something to failure? And we actually had to kind of back away from that approach. And even now when I'm, as I'm self-coaching, I never take sessions to 100% of failure because for me, that is a that's a really emotional, maybe even philosophical experience. It's just devastating in a lot of ways. So um, it's something that I'm, I really, really steward very carefully. That's something I can really only do like a handful of times a year. And I want to save those for outings on the race course, not training sessions. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So let's, uh, since you brought up that those training sessions, and David, if you're listening, I, uh, I've, I've been there, I've, I've done those sessions before because David and I worked a little bit together where he was, um, he was mentoring me as a coach uh, a few years back, and so I, I'd, I'd seen those works workouts, and I've assigned them to some of my athletes as well. Um, and it's, it's the right kind of person that benefits from those, and they're definitely not universally useful because I mean, I, I think, and uh, there's definitely a physical adaptation that that will occur from a, a session of such difficulty but sometimes uh, the the psychological and the, the the cognitive cost isn't uh isn't worth it um and to your point they do have to be calibrated correctly because if you're if you're doing you know 40 minutes worth of essentially vo2 max work that's a very deep very hard workout um and uh i think you bring up an excellent point too cody with with how it becomes a philosophical question of what is failure? Like, could you do one more interval? And for for some of us, when that answer ends up being no, and especially if the expectation of where, you know, our coach or we ourselves more commonly have uh, have set that bar maybe a little bit too high or, you know, it's maybe not the best day, that is, you know, that's a that's a blow to the ego. And an ego is a very important component of like the kind of the, 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 the psychological ecosystem of, of someone doing this kind of work so it's uh it is something it is an effort that those are workouts that i generally stay away from i think i i have one athlete who i will still ask to do this because she's just very good at doing them but mostly i've i've walked away from workouts to failure as well for me it's really duration dependent too like i will do regular time trials in the pool that are all out but those are usually capped at even 200 meters 50 100 or 200 on the bike same i'll do one minute efforts all out but as it gets up to, you know, more than five minutes, so you're really, really getting in that hurt locker. Those are the ones that I'm a lot, a lot more careful with. And these days, the way I approach workouts, I never do workouts that are more than what I consider 90% of failure. So, you know, if someone held a gun to my head and said, do more, I could maybe always do 10% more on those sessions. And those are plenty hard for my training. And I found that those, those really epic sessions to failure, 
are um, directly at the expense of consistency, which we all know is just, mm -hmm. you know, the be all and end all of, of quality training that's going to deliver results. So, um, yeah, I'd rather have back to back unremarkable training days than, um, you know, one or two of those epic workouts a week and just days where I feel so shelled between them. I need to recover. I remember hearing a saying at one point that uh, the best workout is the workout you finish. And uh, you certainly don't want to go too easy, but also going too hard and preventing you from finishing a workout or subsequent workouts can have a bigger impact than whatever gains you might get from that extra little squeeze. Yeah, I think of, I think of it kind of, and maybe this is a poor analogy, I don't know. But when we talk about whether it's like, you know, resistance training, like weightlifting or any kind of endurance training, it's the concept is, you know, the concept of volume is is duration times intensity, right? And so, and I sometimes apply that concept to the, you know, the the, the psychological or the cognitive demand of, of training as well. And when that cognitive demand is very high, and to your point, Cody, when that, if the demand's very high, but the duration's very short, you're fine, right? Just like doing a one, you know, you're one rep max squat or something but if you're asked to repeat that until you just can't do it anymore or if you're if you if you're having to put that you know the, the metaphorical foot on the gas for too long uh mentally that does that does fry those circuits right like you will have less of that neural drive available for for your next session and whether that's a metabolic issue from you know like glycogen rep depletion repletion or if it's some kind of central nervous system component we know that the central nervous system obviously plays a huge role in our ability to train and perform and if if you're continuously you you know, going to the well mentally, then you, you know, that eventually that, that thing's going to run dry. Earlier on in my career, I was actually using a system to track training stress that was calculated as rate of perceived exertion on a 10 point scale times the workout duration in minutes. Yep. But really you could take any, any unit of perceived exertion times any unit of time. And um, I'm still not convinced that that may be in the best system. I think for me, I, I've abandoned TSS. I don't use that for a whole host of reasons we don't have to get into is this is obviously a different system, but it captures some of that psychological side as well as the physical stress you're under. Totally. So I think it was a more accurate reflection of sort of the total systemic holistic training effect on my body, how much it was beating me down than anything else I've, I've done since. It's a really interesting point. And I actually brought this up with Michael Erickson and I, listeners, I, I apologize if I don't know this for sure, but I think that episode will air before this one. Um, but we, his, his point on this, you probably have already heard, is that the what you're missing in that system, and I happen to agree with him, even though it does work quite well, is it's hard to peg improvement, right? To, to see like, am I actually objectively getting stronger? Is my power going up? Is my pace in the swim, pace in the run going up? So, you know, um, his point, and I, like I said, I do agree with it is that if you're if you're going to go that route which can work and obviously has for lots of folks um you you still want to kind of post hoc look at your look at your objective metrics and so that you can perform that analysis just to see if your training's working right yeah. like it's one thing to to monitor training load and it's useful for sure and i agree with you tss has a lot of flaws to it um but you still want to see like you still want to be able to benchmark against something uh, objective i think I think it's, I, I've had good results using a balance of objective and subjective criteria. So that is, hmm. that's partly sub, a subjective metric, but to be clear, all my training is still based on power on the bike, pace clock on the swim and looking at my watch for pace on the run. So those are the objective criteria you can't really kid yourself about no matter how hard or how easy it feels. So I think the two complement each other nicely. Totally. So there was uh, a point that, um, I, I wanted to make a little bit earlier, but didn't want, want to interrupt you because you're making a, 
a good uh, comment there, Cody. But looking at um, going really deep, um, I wonder if there's some kind of evolutionary reason why our bodies can only do it so many times, like you're causing some kind of damage. Um, I know there's an example, I believe Sarah True, uh, a couple of years ago, where she ran into some heat exhaustion problems. And it was kind of this, uh, this concern about going too many times to that level. And I think um, uh, one of the Brownleys, I think Johnny Brownlee, uh, he had the same concerns about overheating uh, at, uh, or maybe it was Alistair, I can't remember. But anyway, if you go too deep, uh, you can lead to some long-term mental impairments that maybe your body is just trying to self-protect and self-regulate itself and maybe causes some you know, deep down epigenetic changes but uh, it might not be possible to go as deep. And this is completely without evidence. I'm just making a guess at this, but uh, just a, a thought I had. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up, Andrew. Um, just anecdotally, I've heard that for a number of athletes. Uh, one of my good friends in the sport, multiple Ironman champion who I won't name, he had an instance where he was gunning for the win and looked fantastic and just completely detonated himself in the heat. And um, he shared with me privately that he wasn't the same athlete for, I think he said, 18 months after. And specifically, he couldn't perform in the heat to the same level. So I, I truly believe, although maybe it hasn't been borne out in research or even looked at yet, um, there are some profound effects that, that change and maybe maybe forever, if not really long lasting after you do that. Just another anecdote, um, I know another pro who raced towards the end of his career when he was quite sick, another multiple Ironman champion. And um, he thought that dug him such a deep hole racing an Ironman when he was ill that that was kind of the beginning of the end of his career. He was, really wasn't the same athlete after hmm. that. It was kind of a turning point for him. Um, and just a third anecdote I'll share. Another pro, not quite in the same level as the first two. Uh, he raced his first Ironman and went so hard on such a challenging day that he really attributes that to messing up his endocrine system so badly that he retired from the sport. So what I'm getting at with these three anecdotes is Ironman racing is really different than doing an all-out sprint in the pool or some cute little interval sets on the bike those kind of ultra endurance events like that, you really are playing with fire when you push yourself to the limit, especially if you're a really driven person like we all are and like the sport attracts. Mm -hmm. Most people's definition of failure can be pretty brutal over those long durations and can have really long lasting consequences. That makes me think of uh, the uh, the episode we did on pain with uh, Brody Sharp, and he he added the example of of how you know the the mind you know basically pain is a construct in the mind, um, and there was a there was an example there of uh, someone being bitten by a brown snake, and he just thought he was you know he got he got a he scratch scratched his leg. foot on yeah. a on a stick. Yeah. And so ever, and then from that point on, and he almost died, obviously didn't, but from that point on, every time he gets scratched on the leg, he, his, the pain level, the pain from that experience is astronomical because his brain has learned to associate that sensation with something that's life threatening. And I, I wonder if that's, you know, a similar thing that's happening with, uh, when, when, when an athlete goes so very deep over, especially over an iron distance, as you, as you, uh, say, Cody, that it's, it's such a strong kind of, you know, self self-protective instinct for for our brains that that yeah it just won't let you um open the floodgates of effort so much uh in the future it's a it's certainly a scary thought for someone who earns their living racing professionally to mm -hmm. think that you know one one misstep on one day could profoundly influence the rest of your career so again i really i really do stand by my approach of of dnfing ironmans when the day is not really going well at all and i think that's something i'll continue in the future even though i will always finish a shorter distance race just out of respect to the the competitors and the other athletes and everyone else 
Yeah. It is a little bit of a different story when it is your livelihood, right? Like when you're, you're asked to potentially, you know, sacrifice that and to your, you know, based on your examples, that is, that is, it's not something that's just, you know, in your head, that's something that's happened to people where, where those kind of efforts have, have negatively impacted careers. As I heard those anecdotes, when they're relayed to me, I noted them and I could kind of regurgitate them now, but you almost have to suppress the memory of that. Otherwise, it would be really easy to ingrain an experience like the one I just had in Coeur d'Alene as a trauma mm-hmm. that I would carry forward as as fear or as a self-protection instinct to every future Ironman, which I obviously don't want. I, I want to maintain the ability to bury myself like that again and again, hopefully for the win next time. So it's an interesting balance of taking in this information, but also not allowing it to uh, you know create a traumatic memory in your in my case. What's interesting for me is uh, is the, just the role that perceived exertion, and we're back to that term, plays uh, plays in racing. And uh, I'll share my own anecdote. Was this was uh, back in uh, 2018, where uh, I was still running the uh, X3 Training Lab, which was a, a cycling studio in uh, downtown Toronto. And you know things weren't going that well financially for me there, so I made the the difficult decision to close up shop. And it was. Uh, it was kind of a dark time in my life. I had uh, two even younger kids back then, um, and you know things were stressful. There wasn't a lot of sleep happening, and and then financial, uh, you know, discomfort. Let's say uh, added to the mix, and then uh, there was there was a lot of uh, there was a big personal cost for me too in um, in the loss of that space because it was a big part of you know who I imagined myself to be, both personally and as a coach. And so it was yeah it was a it was a an emotionally difficult time for me, and I had uh, signed up for. Um, uh, for for uh, Ironman Tremblant 70.3 in June of that year. And I was like, there's like, there's no way I'm in any kind of mental condition to race this race, even though physically I was, you know, okay for my level to, to race it. Um, and I wasn't, I was, I wasn't going to do it because I just couldn't, couldn't bear the thought of putting myself through any kind of competitive event in the the mental state that I was in. And I was finally, fortunately, I'm grateful for this, convinced by uh, some of the folks that I was working with to to go ahead and do it because they were going to. And um, and basically the the kind of the the structure for myself that I set out for the day was that I am not going to work hard up until a certain point in the run. Like it basically said to myself that I'm going to, I wouldn't go as far as calling it sandbagging, but for my, my level of effort, I would moderate whatever I saw on, you know, the, the power meter and the head unit on the bike or whatever I saw on the, on the run. It, I would keep my RPE below a certain threshold. Like I would keep having fun up until, you know, 10 kilometers left in the run, half of the run being done. It was like, I cannot go any harder than this. So if, if it feels unfun, I'm just I preemptively making the decision to just slow down, right? And so, and it was one of the funnest races I've ever had. And I actually did reasonably well. Like I, I performed to my, you know, fairly close to my ability, I think, on the day. Um, and it was, it was like, it was, uh, it was like a, a marquee moment in my life where I was like, well, maybe this isn't, I'm not racing to my best abilities, but this is a sustainable way to race. And for me, like, you know, I'm not, I'm not even ending up on the age group podium in those events. Um, but it, I can still express my fitness to a reasonable degree and still have a really good time doing it, which is really the point for me um, without, you know, murdering myself on the, on the run course or, and, and still having a great time. So ever since then, I haven't, I haven't been able to go very deep in a race cause I still don't get as much sleep as I want. And there's still a lot more stress in my life than maybe I would like there to be, but uh, it's, it's been a strategy that's really worked well for me. Yeah. I wish yeah. Um... As a pro, that's I not could, an option I, for you, I don't no, think, Cody. But... <laughs> I mean, it is to some extent. Like I've had really good races where a lot of pressure has been removed, where I've been 
really in the underdog position or in one case where my, my bike showed up the night before and I was just in a place of gratitude to even be able to make it to the start line. So there, there is some power in, in that, something like that approach, I think, where you just remove a lot of the performance pressure on yourself mm-hmm. and you often surprise yourself with results. Yeah. And it's uh, especially for, for, you know, for longer races and for age group athletes who are, you know, who, who have goals of finishing or even finishing well, I think that's a really, that's a really potent strategy because there's only a certain amount of, you know, going back to my analogy of, of willpower or mental fortitude or whatever you want to call it as a resource, you only have a certain amount of it. Right. And when it runs out, then that's when things get kind of crappy. So my, my strategy has become not to tap into that reservoir uh, for as long as humanly possible in any kind of race that's longer than an hour um and it's you know it's been it's been a reasonable way to go i still have to learn how to do that i'm continually making the same mistake and uh we'll we'll have to do another recording on this but uh, my race over the weekend was very much the same case i think at least where i had under predicted what or over predicted what my body was capable of on that day <laughs> uh, but that's that's a common trend for me so I remember the first time it was kind of a paradigm shift for me where I saw what it meant to really go to the well, having never witnessed this before. It was um, one of the one of the early pro 70.3s in my career, maybe circa 2015. And it was Ironman 70.3 Muskoka. I was leading most of the race. Um, I was in position to get my first big pro win. It was really exciting. And then this scrappy older pro, Richie Cunningham, who's now retired, charged past me in the last half of the run. And what was remarkable to me is that he was so much more spent than me at the finish line in every visible way. Um, he could barely talk. And I kind of crossed the line. and I'm like, oh, this is disappointing. And I picked up a conversation with some people right away. And um, people pointed out to me after, like, he looked 10 times worse than me. Yet he was the winner. And so I really had to kind of chew on that for a while. And so that was when um, David, my coach, and I at the time set out on this mission to, you know, be able to go to the well in racing, which I wasn't able to do successfully for a couple years after that. And I've really only done a handful of times in my whole career, I would say. Your recent experience at Kirtland uh, has that? Do you think that's that that will help you do that? Is that something that you want to do in your in your career? Is it something you're going to use very strategically? Like, obviously, if you're you know if you're soloing for the win and there's nobody on your heels, then that's a different different scenario than if you're in a you know race to the finish. Yeah, I mean, I, I won my first three Ironmans by ten minutes. It made me appreciate what a what a position of luxury that was, and. Um, I'll never be that comfortable winning another Ironman, I predict, given how much more competitive the sport's become, unfortunately. <laughs> I shouldn't say unfortunately. It's great, but not, not as great for the pocketbook. Um, I think, Michael, it's, it's, context, it's, context, it's context dependent for me. So I will go to the well like that again gladly if it's for the win at a B-rate race, if it's for a podium at a regional championship, if it's for maybe even a top 10 at Kona. I won't do it so casually for a sixth place at a little nothing Ironman ever again just based on how I've responded to that in the, in the weeks after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, Ironman Lake Placid is a, is a maybe. What else, uh, what's what's the rest of your season looking like if you're if you're willing to talk about it? Yeah, of course. Um, it's still very much in flux. It has been for the last 13 months since the start of the pandemic, mm-hmm. really even longer than that. Um, I just feel like I've been in damage control mode. Usually I like to have a season set by now. So I think the right play might be just to hit the reset button and um, – really get myself healthy, build up a proper base of fitness again. And I think that would be pretty tight timing to target Ironman Canada at the end of September. But, you know, guys, it's it's embarrassing to be to have reached this level of, you know, qualifying for Kona and being talked about even as a podium threat in 2018. And this year, it's looking like I won't even qualify for Kona. I won't qualify for the Collins Cup. 
And you could say it's been a couple strokes of misfortune, but some of that's also on me. Um, so I do think it might be the right time to hit the reset button. And retrospectively, I wished I'd done that last year. I don't think anyone really knew the extent of the pandemic. If you told me I'd missed two chances to defend my title at Ironman Montreal Blanc due to cancellations at the start of all this, I would have I would have scoffed at you. Yeah. With 2020 hindsight, though, knowing this would stretch this long, I would have taken a sabbatical last year, let myself get a little, a little out of shape, let the endocrine system rebound, let my tissue heal completely from a couple of minor niggles I've had. Um, I think that would have been the right play last year. But making the most of the current situation, and I think late some late fall racing this year is really salvageable for me. Yeah, and there's uh, there's tons of tons of it available, right? I mean, as as you mentioned in the beginning of the show, Ontario is just kind of coming out of lockdown and uh and of course they canceled tromblant in quebec um and uh you know our racing you know i have this conversation all the time when my athletes are asking me when we when when i think if i have any inside knowledge on, on when racing is going to return and of course nobody no it doesn't matter who you are no one knows the answer to that question um but uh you know folks in the states uh, that i work with are full-on racing right so there's a lot of options uh a lot of options in the fall a lot of big races still still uh, up for grabs then. Yeah, it's been it's been quite frustrating. Thankfully, my sponsors have been quite understanding, appreciating the different situations here. It was pretty surreal to be in the U.S. Uh, I did you know a training camp in St. George, Utah, and then I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then Boise and Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, three of the most wide open states for better or worse. Yeah. Um, and then coming back here where our pools still aren't even open and we don't have indoor dining and a whole host of other things. So. Um, it's been really challenging as an athlete, to say the least. It's definitely tested my commitment to the sport, and I thought very, very uh, honestly about hanging it up this year. But um, yeah, I know there's unfinished business, and it was heartening to me that I enjoyed the hell out of that that training block, even though I was doing my biggest, highest volume ever and pushing myself harder than ever. Um, I still really love the daily grind. So that to me says I'm not done quite yet, even if the outcome wasn't what I'm after. <laughs> Well, process goals, right? <laughs> Always about the process um, goals. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's really good to hear. I mean, it's been it's been so, you know, we kind of I'm surrounded by age group athletes, obviously my friends and, and people I work with as uh, as athletes. And then and, and it's a it's a constant drip, drip, drip. And a very it's it's of conversation about, you know, when we're racing, how this pandemic has impacted stuff, how we like haven't been able to swim in a year and a half, which for me is no big deal because that's kind of like my MO anyway. But <laughs> but uh, it's yeah, it's been it's been tough for all of us. But I haven't talked to a pro about it because that's for you guys. That's like, it's that times 10 because it's not only is it something that you, you know, hopefully love doing, but it's also your livelihood for, for, you know, for so many of you. Yeah. That's uh must be, you know, extra, extra fun. <laughs> Just please know. I hope our pools don't close for the fourth time. It's been three periods of four to 11 weeks where I've been <laughs> completely, completely out of the water. And I was trying to swim in like five degrees Celsius water in the spring and, that's uh, that was almost enough to break me, guys. <laughs> I will say, from my point of view, with Alberta reopening, it has been a very odd experience um, where you get into this mental state where, uh, at least for myself, seeing everyone with masks, keeping social socially distance. As soon as that goes away, and as soon as so many people go back to normal, it's almost like culture shock, and it's been a little bit tough to adapt to. And I know it'll come back over time, but. Uh, I think there's going to be some long, long lasting mental impacts um, just for how people act around other people. Um, so I'm glad I'm not the only one. I felt like a level of social anxiety, shaking people's hands and giving them hugs again in the U S despite being fully vaccinated and, you know, being a negligible yeah. risk. 
Uh, so I agree with you, Andrew. Yeah, it's it's a very strange experience, and I'm sure there'll be many psychology studies that come out of this on all aspects of the pandemic. But uh, but certainly how humans are as social creatures, um, you know, how quickly things go back to normal, what types of people go back to normal faster, and how some people may never ever accomplish that. Similar to the uh, you know digging deep and and doing something hard for a race, like it may be difficult to get back to that complete social comfort that uh, that people were with before. Yeah, that's a great tie-in, Andrew. I, I think maybe a note to end on, we are, I think we do have a fair bit of control and autonomy over what we want to carry forward from experiences so that that experience in Coeur d'Alene, I could equally internalize it as a trauma to influence all my future racing or as a point of pride that, look, I, I got the most out of myself on the day. So I think there is a, uh, some choice there in how it's framed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, that's a great um, optimistic way of looking at it. Sometimes we don't, you know, control how we how we deal with trauma, but that is, uh, yeah, in uh, in a uh, best case scenario, that is that is a, a great way to think about it. I think too, Cody. So um, once again, thank you for for taking the time. I know you're uh, you're in a little bit of recovery mode from uh, from the experience in in the Ironman CDA. But uh, we're, you know, we we wish you all the best, of course, and uh, we're looking forward to working with you on uh, on a couple of things as well. Like uh, I know you're you're, uh, I think it's out of embargo, right? You can tell people that you're riding a new bike. That's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm finally on the new Ventum, which you might have peeped in the coverage when I haggardly made my way to the front of the race for a hot minute. Um, yeah, it's, it's very. Cool. Yeah, that was a that was a good photo yeah, <laughs> with you and Lionel. talking about differences with pro and age, age group racing. It crossed my mind. I'm like, oh, well, this is one salvageable positive from the day. I'll haul my ass up to the front of the race and get a bit of airtime for Ventum and head and stuff. So <laughs> not a total failure, I guess. But yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to test with you guys on that and. And hey, it was good to talk through all this. I feel like you should send me the bill for the therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're wildly unqualified, I think, on that front. We're <laughs> we're reaching on some of the some of the physiology and and, and sports psychology stuff. But yeah, but uh, we'll we'll figure something out, Cody. We, uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll make we'll make it work. Yeah. So listeners, as always, thank you so much for spending the time with us today and uh, keep those questions coming and the the show requests. We've had a couple come through uh, uh, our Instagram channel and uh, a couple of the emails um, and through reviews and comments on the website. So those are always really nice to read. Uh, please do keep those coming. And of course, um, if you're listening on iTunes, give us a rating and review there and uh, tell your friends because that's the the best way to uh, spread the love and uh, and let people know that what we're talking about here can uh, hopefully make a difference in your training or racing life. So with that, we're out and we'll uh, talk to you next week.